Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. In today's podcast, my 110th interview, I'm pleased to welcome Mark D., whose story of two years of sobriety may strongly resonate with newer members of AA. Longer-term sobriety enjoyed by many AAs I've interviewed may seem unattainable or out of reach to people with less than a year or two. But the recency of Mark's AA recovery story has an immediate and compelling impact. Raised by divorced parents, Mark's early life before alcohol reflected many of the same fears, self-doubts, and loneliness familiar to all too many of us. By his early and later teens, liquor became an antidote to his problems and opened up new vistas to life. From college on, alcohol loomed ever larger in his life. Complicated by concurrent food and work addictions, his toxic lifestyle morphed into more than a few miserable years. Mark had accomplished brief stints of sobriety and even attempted AA for a brief time. Yet his half-hearted attempts, predicated on wanting to please others, met with failure. His opportunities to drink and use Adderall were unleashed by owning his own company with no outside accountability to family or friends. Spiraling out of control towards rock bottom, Mark finally made the decision for himself to quit drinking. He crawled into AA in late 2020 and has been there ever since. Unlike his first forays in AA, Mark found a solid group of men who embraced him and helped him work his way into the middle of the herd. Working the steps with a sponsor, going to daily meetings, enlarging his spiritual life, and sponsoring other men have become Mark's recipe for success in the program. The model of AA sobriety he follows has worked undeniably and is available to all who seek it. So please enjoy today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my relatively new friend, but solid AA brother, Mark D. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Mark. So glad to have you on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me this evening. Hey, Howard. Good to be here and appreciate you uh, allowing me to, to visit with you and get to actually get to know you. Well, we both shared a really great men's meeting tonight. We had probably 100 men in here, and it was just uh, watching guys get birthday chips, and it was a meeting on prayer and meditation, and just it was a very, very good meeting overall. So it's nice to be able to do this afterwards. I want to acknowledge you in a way that you may not expect, but a couple years ago when I first met you, and I had just started doing the, the podcast, you asked me, you said, I want to be on that podcast. What do I need to do to get on that podcast? And I think I remember saying something to you like, if you stay sober for two years, then you come and talk to me and then we'll do an interview. And so here we are. When was your two-year anniversary? My official full-on sobriety date is uh, December 9th. I, ha- I hadn't had a pill since December 9th. I haven't had a drink of alcohol since November 13th of 2020. But I, my sobriety date that I celebrate is December 9th. Uh, Good. Like, I'm glad that I didn't go out yeah. When I realized on December 9th that I wasn't sober, right? So December 9th was the last pill you had, and November 
was the last drink. Yeah, Friday the 13th, 2020. Well, you know what's interesting, Mark, is that a lot of times over the years, I've heard guys with two different dates, like the date that they stopped drinking, the date that they stopped using drugs, pills, whatever, or the date that they you know, stopped smoking grass, whatever it was. And over time, what'll happen is that'll get kind of tedious to tell that story. So you'll just come up with one date and leave the other one in the past. Uh, to me, it's a lot like when people say, the and does, you know, I'm, I'm a, my name's Howard and I'm an alcoholic and an addict and a this and a that and the other thing. Years ago when I first came in, I used to identify myself as all the other and does, but alcoholism had consumed my life to such an extent that all of my other addictions were dragged into the room with me. I haven't done that in a long time, so. My, my original sponsor um, hates that I have two dates, and he's, I for remind him you're supposed to be patient, loving, and tolerant, but, but I really, truly am grateful, and it's, yeah. a, you know, the first step, right, of powerless over alcohol, that whole second date is, just screams to me that I was trying to manage my own life, like, yeah. and my life, my biggest drug is more, and I didn't know how to, con you know, I wanted to control everything and I can't, you can't, you got to let go. You were one of the Zoom babies, as they call them, the, the people who, who got sober uh, with Zoom. But very shortly after that, you got with a group of men who met in a park over on the west side here, uh, out in the air and six feet apart and masks and that kind of thing. And I probably saw you in a meeting on, but that was the first time I got to meet you in person. I thought about getting sober four months before Zoom, mm -hmm. and I came in for a week. I didn't think I had a problem, like y'all had a bunch of problems, and, and, and I didn't want what they had, and I had a uh, time management issue. And so I just needed to be more in, more organized and have live by an agenda and a schedule. And you know, I tried to look at the steps and you know real quick and tried to rush through them and didn't want to have a sponsor. And someone said, don't think, right? It's like, uh, don't tell a smart guy not to think. And, you know, it's just, uh, that obsession was there that I couldn't not be obsessed about something as simple as like, don't think, right? You know, I went out and yeah. just did some more research. and That was for four months that you said? No, this was uh, in 2019 and life got really bad. They gave you access to take stuff to go. So my favorite place was a Cajun restaurant and you get hurricanes by the milk jug and uh, I could just isolate and be by myself and try to do work but be basically a non-functioning guy. Um, I did that for that year and uh -huh. uh, life got bad on that, that Friday the 13th. Um, life was bad throughout but it yeah. became unmanageable. I went to my first meeting you know, I, I was in a, in a parking lot calling a guy. My ass was on fire. And I had met him over the summer, and he I realized like he there was something different about him. And that whole year uh -huh. between first meeting ever, getting back in, you'd meet people, and they had a glow about them. And I'd be like, what? Are you a friend of Bill's? You know, he's one of the guys I caught to. And he's in the construction business, the roofing business like me, but he also mm -hmm. has 36 years. And he... Was like meet me at the club at 6:30, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know if I have enough time. I'm sitting in a parking lot, thinking about killing myself, trying to spend whatever money I have on whatever beer I can get. Like I literally was like, I got, it. I can make it there. And I just my truck drove from Kingwood to the club, and he's like, okay, now let's go to this Friday night speaker meeting. I showed up to him there, and I felt so good, and there were people there, and I was like, you know, I ended up going to the meeting after the meeting at Denny's with two random people that one I know is I think they're both still sober and never saw him again in a meeting 
I jumped in the herd, right? And then I did go to Zoom three days later. Mm-hmm. I did the Zoom and I went to technologies that, that you could find a meeting nearby. And I, uh, I really want to be a part of it now. And then I just didn't know, right? But I, I went to the closest geographical place uh, and I drove to the church there and uh, no one was there. And so I got on the Zoom and I got connected with um, with Jack D and Brent F and a bunch of guys. They all gave me their numbers, but you know, there's two guys that stayed on. One is both Jack and Brent, and uh, one had to because he was moderating, and the other one wanted to because he wanted to help. And fortunately, you know, I got their numbers. I took their numbers and I used their numbers and I called them. And uh, two days later, my butt was on fire. I called Jack. I wore him out for about 20 minutes. He said, "Why don't you call someone else? Why don't you call Brent?" And I called Brent, and Brent said. You know, it's really special that we're here because Brent was like, hey, there's there's a meeting. It's live. And Brent was a Zoomer pretty hard, uh-huh. but he was like, there's a meeting. It's started back up live. It's at tonight. We usually go to dinner afterwards. You know, I'm not, I haven't been, I've just been doing the Zoom. I've been kind of moderating. So, you know, if you want to meet for a meeting, we can go there. And I was so like. So that was your first live meeting? That was my first live meeting kind of in the herd that I'm a part of today, right? So the, the interesting thing about you when I first met you was when you said that deal about, I don't have an alcohol or drug problem, I've got a scheduling problem. What, was, what were you not looking at with your alcohol and drug use that you attributed to the, the scheduling or the time management? At the time? Yeah. I put a lot, I, you know, I don't, today I don't, re- I realize, you know, I'm, I have more worth than, than I ever did before, but I didn't have much self-worth then. Um, and, but I put a lot of my self-worth and not just a ton. I would say at one point, I think I thought I put it all. I definitely didn't now looking back, but I put a lot of my self-worth into how well my my business was and how and I started my own business when I was in 2015. And I got to this point in my life where I, I thought the idea of killing myself was a better idea than maybe going bankrupt. And so I'm at a point today where I haven't gone bankrupt yet, uh, and I haven't killed myself, thank God. And you're a participant, and you're, you're trying to remain right in the middle of the herd, and that's, that's the good news. Tell me about your childhood. So I was born and raised here in Houston, Texas. Uh, grew up inside the loop. My parents divorced at a young age. Uh, I have a twin sister uh, and an older brother. Mm-hmm. He's four years older and I think she's three minutes older, but both of them were pretty competitive in sports and I played sports, but I was always the hustle guy mm-hmm. and I want to be a part of the team guy and I wasn't really that great at it. Um, mm-hmm. My parents divorced at three. My dad moved out. Uh, my mom was a, was a single mom with uh, not a lot of time and three kids and she was basically a chauffeur for my sister because my sister was a competitive gymnast. She would go to practice at five or six in the morning and she would leave school early, go to school late, leave school early, and uh, practice till, you know, nine or 10. My brother was like a typical dude, right? You know, once you find girls, uh, you're gone. You know, he was, you know, didn't want any part of his little brother. And he was a little bit of a hellion, so he, he spent time out with my, my dad on the other side of town. I was kind of left to my own devices a lot. I lived on a dead-end street. My, you know, my grandmother would pick me up, and do stuff with me. I found that I probably had an addiction or something way back when, you know, my grandma would put me on a shot clock or a limit or uh, when it comes to how many sodas I have in a day. Imagine that, you know, a lot of guys in the room see me with my big Diet Coke that 
but now I've transferred to hopefully water more often. But, but that started at a young age when she said I could only have one. The dishonesty part, you know, my mom didn't have much money, but she had some. She wasn't around to hold me accountable, and my dad wasn't really around. So, I, you know, I'd steal silver dollars from my mom um, here or there, and I'd go down to the 7-Eleven when it first opened and get Slurpees, Taco Bell. So I would suff- I would change the way I feel, you know, with food and with stuff. Um, and I realized that now I didn't know it then. Right? Well, how often did you see your father when you were living with your mother? I, I saw him a lot, right? But we did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, how he wanted to do it. And, and that's kind of the way I patterned my life too, right? I want to li- do what I want to do when I want to do it. He owned his own business. Mm-hmm. Me and him had a lot of fun when I saw him. He was kind of like Captain Good Times, although he was always tough on me, but great with everyone else. And I think that's normal probably for parents, but he was raised by an alcoholic father that I never met. He died a few years before I was born, probably from the disease, but you know, who knows? Cause he, no one was there when it happened. There's some just things that he does. My dad didn't do well, but what he did do well is he showed me that if you work hard, you can have a great life and you can go have fun right. and you can get attention from all different places that healthy or unhealthy and so we would go to rockets games and eat crawfish and have a good time we would go hunting i hunted more and and fished more with uh, my dad and he's probably my best friend before i was 18 than most people would want to do in a lifetime i got to a point like you know i saw my mom we didn't let my mom date right Mm. we wouldn't you know someone good or bad whoever came around we'd run them off right i definitely me (laughs) I don't know about my brother or sister, but I was not a big fan. I would not. And so, it, you know, poor mom didn't have that. My dad got to date who he wanted to date, you know, be in relationships, not necessarily be in the ones we wanted him to be in, but had a, what looks like a great life. And I, and it's been a great life. I'm grateful for what he did the best he could with what he could. And I'm grateful for what he did. But I, uh, I got to go do all the hunting and the fishing and like be his buddy. But like, you know, other people would be like, you know, he's doing a good job. He's, he's He's pretty good at, you know, helping out and being a helper. And, you know, I never would get that from my old man, right? Mm. And and I'd get to anticipate kind of like what I need to do yeah. to help him. And then I got to this point where it's like, I see it now in all our relationships. I date women that are like my dad. Yeah. I seek their approval and validation and people that aren't emotional. And it's um, frustrating because like, why would I want to do that? But I continue to see, I see that I continue to do that. Um, Let me ask you about the type of relationship it sounds like you had with your dad was kind of a buddy type relationship. And, and sometimes those relationships are, are great until you get to the part that requires some emotion, some expression of that emotion, some outward demonstrations of love and, and unconditional acceptance. How was that side of the relationship with your dad? Well, I always chose my dad, right? If I could. Um, and so at some, at one point I thought about moving out to live with my dad mm-hmm. and my mom got evicted and I, and I used to say, uh, she didn't ask my dad for help and she, my dad didn't just offer help. We had to move where I grew up, yeah. we'd leave from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a chance, I thought that I might move in eighth grade, uh, to live with my dad. My dad was kind of an aloof guy. So he didn't know about parenting. Although he wanted us there, he just didn't know all the details. He toured, he went me to tour the wrong middle school 
I, if he would have sent me to the right middle school and we would have done the tour, I probably would have moved out there, right? But that was God working in my life. And I, so I went to a brand new middle school, like first class, and a great experience, and I'm glad we did it. But, but then come high school, I wanted to live with my dad. And so I decided I'd go, you know, ditch my mom, go live with Captain Good Times, and hopefully, you know, I meet new people and I can still connect with my old friends. So I lived out there, and, and once I moved out there, he moved from being the fun dad that was always around and we always, you know, took me to dinner and spent time with me in good ways to not being around because he had to work, not answering <laughs> my beck and call as much as I'd like, and also being a kind of an authority, you know, on some things and like having, being a dad with rules and yeah, so that's, so I ran from that. <laughs> so I went back, I moved, I moved back, you know, I transferred high schools I went to three high schools, so I went to one in his neighborhood, one where my mom was a teacher. I finally got uh, transferred to where all my best friends were in high school, um, and I got to spend two years with him and be connected. And once I did that, you know, still wanted to choose a dad, and I, I had a car, so I moved back out with my dad, and I just drove in every day to high school. And Girls became a thing, and alcohol became a thing, and being with my buddies became a thing. Um, and my dad, uh, once I got into high school, you know, I say I basically ditched my best friend and buddy, um, for alcohol and attention from girls. Eighth grade, the idea of dome foam at the rodeo, or I can remember being with my buddy and, um, steal, you know, getting into some Jack Daniels and taking a Jack and Coke and just sipping it and spitting it all over my dad's floor. My dad being a guy that liked to go hunting or fishing or do whatever, it was perfectly well-suited for me in my uh, need for ex approval from others. My my dad, my brother was too, he's, they partied, they did their thing, but, and I don't know how much he partied at my dad's house, right? My dad stopped caring as much about some of the rules and regulations that he had of my brother. And so I got to party and have a great time. So we'd have parties at my dad's house probably every, every other weekend if, if we could. And yeah keg, yeah, keg parties and, you know, cases of beer. But so 13, we did it. And we, you know, my brother, my buddy had an older brother. We wanted to be like our older brothers and we wanted to be like yeah. some, some of our parents that always were having fun at, you know, different social events. Um, so was this a crowd that you hung with in high school? The crowd that drank and... so. Yeah, these are kids I went to elementary school with to, to you know, still some lifelong friends. But and me having the freedom of like basically being another bachelor with my dad and some like mm -hmm. like yeah. it was either I'm a bachelor and I can do what I want, or he's gonna have his thumb on me, right? But oh, but when boy. he when yeah. I got to do what I wanted, it was great. So I went up to College Station and I can remember partying with my older brother, um, you know, as a 15 year old was pretty cool. That is cool, being 15, going up to A&M and uh, partying with the big like, boys, as you yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, I think I always wanted to do that. Um, so was that an aspiration of yours somewhere along the way? Did you did you look at the lifestyle that your brother was having and what you saw in the college life? Did that become something that you aspired to be or to do? Oh, yeah. I mean, not just my brother, but my dad, too. My da I mean, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be like... I wanted to be like some of my brother's friends, um, but my friends, like I can remember, I, you know, I grew up going to a church camp, having a, 
accepting Christ, uh, you know, at a young age and having an accountability partner and being a, having a herd as like a six-year-old. And I still have that today. Actually, when I, yeah, I had some, one of my closest friends' fathers did something really great for me in early sobriety. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll never be able to make it right with it. But mm-hmm. I am grateful for him for what he did. And I've always looked mm-hmm. at him and his wife like a, like my brother. My buddy would get so upset because I'd call him by their first name as, as a kid. Yeah. But they modeled what like a good relationship looked like. And, and like I was That's in a bad cool. place and I called him and I told him and I was just used getting used to talking to people and telling them about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. You know, he called me back later on that day with like a solution, and it was like the kindest, sweetest thing. I, anyone, one of the things that anyone's ever offered me, and like, I already don't feel good about myself often, and so when right. people are generous and considerate, like it's my heart just goes crazy. So, um, yeah. So I, but I, mm-hmm. I had a bad experience. Like I made a bad decision in seeking approval right um in at a at a church camp and i was volunteering at a at the time an epilepsy camp i made a bad decision um i pulled the same prank Mm -hmm. that my counselor pulled on me you know you you say you got a a mighty mouse tattoo on your butt and you moon your Mm -hmm. campers i mooned my campers Uh and uh i got fired from that job and i got let go from being a junior counselor at at camp which is where i grew up yeah. Uh, I went there for 10 years, like, a, like three, 400, 500 people on my Facebook are from that. And I'm grateful for these people, these connections, but they shaped my life, but I got rejected. Right. And I got pushed out. Yeah. So that night, my buddies, whenever I wasn't with the party, right. You always have that fear of missing out. What are they doing? Well, I never did weed. I never was a part of that. But that night I came, drove back into town from, um, not being able to beg for my position back and um so i drove back in from livingston and i went to a party and you know someone was rolling a big like american flag uh dupe joint not a doobie but a blunt whatever it was and they were passing it around and i was like holy crap so that was like when it happened that was like 17 and it was i mean i wanted to change the way i feel another case of the fuckets right like I just didn't, you know, I'm not accepted here, so I'm going to go to a dark place. Now, did that did that kind of launch your use of of uh, marijuana? Weed wasn't the big the biggest thing, it, it, but it, but I tried, but I smoked, but I smoked weed alcoholically. Like I thought, you can get more high, right? Which I don't think it's it's a different kind of high. It's a different kind of high. I mean, to me, I, I've always felt that. Smoking pot always made me sharper, and I was a lot more. I was a lot sloppier when I was when I was drinking, and that was pretty. That was probably pretty true. I, the thing about starting in high school, is that oftentimes the booze is harder to get than the grass. When when you have an older brother, who has your older cousin's um, uh, fake ID or real ID, I didn't have to have a fake ID. I did get a fake ID, and we all got it confiscated. Um, but I had an older cousin, the real Captain Good Times. He coined that phrase, but um, 
he was my drinking buddy, workout buddy in college, but um, I had his ID and then I had my brother's ID. And so I just used their ID and I mean, it was current. Yeah, so you could get, you could get alcohol really anytime you wanted. But I didn't try, I only, we, we still only went to certain places, but that, that we knew were hip. I never bought weed until I own my own business. I always just got it from yeah. somebody, but I would, and I would partake in it when I could, mainly in a group setting kind of like that. But I put the weed down for my career for a long time. Yeah. Where there's some people like, I, I don't know how they, today it's maybe more accepted. People do it all the time. And I didn't do it because I was too paranoid of what the consequences of it. But alcohol, I mean, I was a daily drinker. I would go to the bar. I would get wherever I went. The, you know, I had a place that was my bar, right? So that I could be a part of. And it's it's accepted too. That's the other thing in business. You know, you get together for a business lunch or a business party or anything after work. Alcohol is almost always involved. But once I started my own business, all bets were off, right? Like I didn't have to answer to anybody, including God. And so I didn't have to have a drug test. So I didn't, so I could smoke weed but I, but I never did. I, but I, I used, I eventually used Adderall to manage after Hurricane Harvey more yeah. and be able to keep up with all the influx of calls and, and servicing people and try to like, you know, I'd wake up late because I was drunk usually. And then I'd have to get started. So Adderall helped me get started. And then yeah. I always have wanted to outwork my competition and outwork my mistakes. And so, yeah. you know, I'm going to work later. Well, it's harder to work later when you're when you start drinking at five or six and then as you start doing Adderall I start I get tense so I start drinking earlier and I started drinking like eight in the morning nine in the morning when I'd wake up just beer just sipping just to take the edge off but it Adderall made me feel like I was connected to electricity yeah and and I was taking that at one point you know I went from maybe one pill a day to one and a half pills a day to probably as much as like four pills a day, four twenties. Oh, yeah, that's tough. But then the weed went from social to like, I need this to calm down because my heart is just racing. Now, while this is happening, you get out of college, you start this business. How many years are we talking about between starting your business and getting sober? What, what, how many years is that? Uh, so I'm uh, 42. So I graduated and, and I took the I wanted to have more fun in college, so I took the five-year tour at A&M, and, um, and so I graduated '04. Immediately, I wanted to be in Houston, but I took a job, and I moved to Dallas. All my friends were in Houston. Uh-huh. I used to vacation back, just thinking about it. Vacation, I'd take my vacation days instead of to go see things and experience things. I would come back to visit my friends to go out and just have a regular Thursday night, right, and be a part of, right? Right, I get it. You know, 04 until 2015 is when I started my business. And then I, you know, I partnered with my best customer, uh, learned the, some parts of the business, mm-hmm. wanted to grow with them. Uh, one did, one didn't. I was a part of the problem. I was a pain in the ass to deal mm-hmm. with. Some would say still am. So I, it wasn't working out. So I went and learned solar instead of roofing. I went and learned the solar business, partnered with the guy, my brother's old neighbor, mm-hmm. the guy we used to have party with and. He was an old client of mine in the roofing business and went to New Orleans, would drive to New Orleans on Mondays and come back on Fridays um, so that I could still get the party in Houston. <laughs> Even though New Orleans was fun, I, I just, New Orleans is my favorite city on earth, but 
for some reason I wanted to be in Houston chasing Houston girls, not New Orleans girls. I brought solar to Texas for this company, had part of ownership, was really invested and put my worth into this. Like, this is going to be great for roofing and for solar, and I have a part ownership, and I'm going to bust my butt and um, do this. The guy uh, burned me on my ownership pretty early on, mm. and I still stayed. Now, what, were you, uh, at this point, you, you talk about coming back to Houston to party with your friends and everything else. Is this early in your business career, was this a point at which that you were still just partying on weekends, or when did it become an everyday thing for you? Yeah, so for a long time, it was, you just go harder on the weekends, right? It became, definitely became an everyday thing after 2015, when I basically became Mm self-employed for minus the solar thing, where I was W-2, but it became a day, I was a daily drinker starting then. I would go drink, depending on where I was, I would go drink every day, Mm -hmm. and I probably wouldn't get drunk every day. Um... And I wouldn't go hard, but I would, there were certain things, certain activities that would keep me from drinking. Looking back at that time from what you know now, Mark, at what point do you think you turned the corner from being a daily drinker to being a problem drinker slash alcoholic? When- Probably became a daily drinker in college. And I almost failed out of college because of it. And then I got to, got tight. I got focused. I lost weight then. I became a 4.0 student, never was a 4.0 student in high school. So you stopped and, and then accomplished those things? So I, so I cut back. I managed. But I, was, I had problems with friends and relationships. Like I'd get drunk and I'd fight my buddies. I fought pretty much oh, every boy. one of my best friends. And I'd fight them all, but then I, I'm a lover yeah. too, right? So I immediately can try to make my mistakes right. You know, that wore thin with some mm. people. But I had an issue that... I got into a big fight with a buddy of mine in the summer, um, but we fought, and I went 105 days after that sober. And I think someone gave me a copy of the big book. Was this kind of an early admission, at least for 105 days, that you had problems drinking? It was an early admission that my life might would probably be better without alcohol. One of my friends today, he was like, you were so nice to me after I started drinking again. He's like, you were such a great guy to be with. But when you when you drink, I don't want to be anything to do with you. Like I'm just maybe more sarcastic, right? Or I'm not a nice guy to be around, and I'm not a mean guy to be around. But I'm I'm so much better living a life of of sobriety versus that. I was drinking I was drinking non-alcoholic beer and not having as much fun in college, being sober. And but I was being doing the right things and doing better in school, and life was getting good. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who have never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. When you 
were drinking back in college, did you anticipate that you might have a future problem with it? Or did you see yourself stopping for a reason in the future? Or were you, did you feel pretty comfortable that you would be able to handle it whenever it came your way? I don't know that I cared to admit that I had a problem then or that I didn't think I was going to put it away for good, right? But I was trying to. I considered, I mean, I read the book, but I never went to a meeting. And I talked to a friend who's not sober today, yeah. but I'm grateful that he introduced me to so it. So you could do it in a self-help kind of way back then. You know, I'm rationalizing why I can go have a drink, right? Well, there's nothing right. wrong with that. So I went and got, I went and had a boring night, but I had a beers and I went from drinking non-alcoholic beer to drinking regular beer. And then the next day a football game happened and, you know, you know, what I like to say about the meetings that we go to is, you know, everyone says 90 meetings, 90 days. Well, like, I used to get drunk on Saturdays three yeah. times, right? Before the game, right after the game, go sober up, relax, and then go to dinner and go out, right? So I, I on Saturdays, I'd go to three meetings in a day because, you know, that's how I drank. Um, that Saturday, you know, it was just game day and it was, you know, I was just going to make up for what I missed out on. But in, I'd say after that and working, I mean, you can't be a drunk and try to be a really good business guy, but, but it, but it does get, a lot of people are. It's hard to do. And, uh, and I, I, I was, I, I was a guy that liked to have a good time and liked, um, attention from different people and not being alone. And, you know, wherever I was, whether it was in McKinney or Wichita, Kansas or Kansas city, um, or Austin, I was alone. And then when I moved back to Houston, I was, I'm, you know, I like acts of God. Yeah, as a roofer, you would. I get that. Yeah, but I like acts of God for roofing. But I liked, and I hurricanes and hailstorms were what we wanted. But now the acts of God that like Him working in my life and other people's lives is just amazing. But I would would drink pretty much every night, and talk work and do work, but like I was alone, yeah. and I didn't have healthy habits and healthy behaviors. And my dad caught on to it early on. He was like, "You stay stuck." And you go, you know, drink, drinking was what I did for the yeah. women, what I did for when the Aggies won, what I did when, you know, because we're going to go play basketball, what we did to celebrate a good mm-hmm. job, what we did when we lost an order, like, just did yeah. it. Um, it became, it wasn't really why we did it. It was became just what we did. It was just part of the whole thing. So there's this period between college. Let's Let's just say that you went from college to starting your own business and you continued to do the things that you were doing with regard to drinking during that time. It took a while for me to start my own business. I didn't start it until I got, I got let go of uh, my dream job by my favorite boss ever. I was teaching him the business. Yeah, I got, I got fired. For drinking? I got fired for my behavior but it all contributed to drinking and to, I got warned and they were like, man, I made a comment right. drunk at a meeting about someone that I was in a relationship oh. with, you know, and then they put me on something and I immediately corrected my behavior. Right. And then they, I'd made another comment or did something else. And I, immediately talking to an economist and making a thing about, instead of worrying about how to corner the market and the economy to do business, it's like, how do I, how do I get this woman to do right. what I want? Right. right. Lubricated on alcohol. And then uh, corrected in a minute of behavior really quickly, which is kind of a theme. And so the sobriety helping, like amending my behavior and like doing it over a course of a time is a huge thing, I guess, I just realized. So you had the opportunity to do it before you knew anything about making amends. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. But then the third time I took someone yeah, to the 
the rodeo mm-hmm. and we were entertaining and I was on committees. So I, and I had some pull and new people and, con, you know, connections with people. It was a big deal, but now it's totally different. Like it's more genuine. You know, I took the prettiest girl I could mm-hmm. and we had, you know, we would go to concerts. So we went to the concert early, go to the wine garden and she, uh, spilt some drinks on me, you know, unintentionally, uh-huh. you know, she's the prettiest girl in the world. We're going to have a great time. And, um, it was not a good representation for the company for me to be with someone. And, and I, I wasn't as bad as she was. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't bad, right? And that fault. Or, you were the one working for the company. She wasn't. Right? Yeah, she was the guest. But So was that, the, was that the last straw for them? So that happened. And then I, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, I got let go. And I thought, oh, someone tattled on me. Someone, I don't know what happened, but it didn't matter. Like, you know, I saved the day. I got her home, rescued her, called the police, called the ambulance because she ended up getting sick, sick and messed up. Um, but like, you know, I felt like the hero. I felt like I was the good guy, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think I felt like that my whole life. Like, I always thought that I was in the right. All the other people are the bad guys. And I'm a good guy. And But really, I'm not. I'm not any better or worse, but I, but I, I'm pretty bad when I think I'm better than you. And I thought I was better. I thought I was wearing the white hat for my whole life. What you just said, the statement that you just made is the classical definition of an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, because, you know, we can feel pretty bad about ourselves. And the only way to make ourselves feel better is to dominate the rest of the world. We're looking down at people from the gutter and alcohol allows that to happen, especially when the people around us are drinking. From 2015, when you started your company, what was the trajectory? What was going on during those years that led you up to December 2020? I'd say a couple right. different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when people say, like, right. you come to the program for certain uh-huh. reasons, right? I didn't have any legal problems. I never got a DUI. I almost could say I was never fired. So would you say you were a functional alcoholic for a long time? Probably still was, yeah. But I ran out of money. I ran out of the ability to manage my own life. Mm-hmm. I had to surrender the, I, I still have the business, but I don't do much with it, right? I do, I, do, I work with another partner besides God, mm-hmm. right? And these guys show me God because they let me in. But, you know, I had to be, it was hard to like, you know, I'm a workaholic, mm-hmm. right? And I had to like, be okay with like, I might not have a company, right? Which took a long time. Some people think I should have just accepted it then early on and just, you know, declared bankruptcy and move forward, right? Were you willing to let it go to get sober? I'm still haven't let it go 100% because I haven't gone bankrupt. And I feel like that's giving up and that's letting people down. And that's also failing. And it's, but I also care what people think, right? My dad, particularly. the most. So you've let go with strings. Yeah. You let go with just in case, you know, it's like all else should fail. You'll still have your opportunity to pull that string and make things happen. There, well, there's a guy, there's a guy in the program that doesn't think he's like, why would you want to sign your life over to the government for any amount of time if you file bankruptcy, right? Pain in the butt. And so I haven't done that. It's a big distraction too. What's that? At bankruptcy. It's a huge distraction. So, and yeah, so I don't, so I haven't done it. But I'm making the mins and doing the things that I need to do to, to clear up the wreckage. But I would say I was functional, but chaotic and messed up a lot of the time. Not a lot of the time, but it, more often than I definitely wanted to be. Because there's times when, you know, I'd make the vow that I wasn't going to drink and I was going to lose, you know, I was going to lose weight and wasn't yeah. going to drink. And, and I mean, I want to do better in work, what, even when I didn't have my own company. Well, one of the things you got to not maybe not drink so much, right? Um 
So by the time you came to that realization in 2020, you'd had the opportunity early on to experience the big book when you were in college? Very briefly. So 2019, I, I bought my first big book. I bought two books, one copy for me, one for another. My life was messed up, fired. I didn't, but I ran out of money right at the end. That was the thing. Now, had you been married during this time? Never married, no kids. But I, but a woman in 2019, um, the only woman I've ever given a, a ring to, uh-huh. and she suggested that I consider why I drink because I don't need, like, <laughs> not because I was ever mean or bothersome to her, right? But I, but I drank for no reason. We went on a vacation once, and I'd slip away and go have, give her space, but also go have a drink. Or at dinner, mm-hmm. I'd have a drink when she could take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. But then other times, we, you know, what I wanted to go do for fun or to take her out instead of just going to a nice deal dinner or going to Top Golf or doing something fun, like it revolved around drinking and being social. Um, so she asked me why I drank. She asked me why I would go to anger. I think that had yeah. more to do with the Adderall, but it, it was there when I drank too with friends. Mm-hmm. And then why um, I didn't have boundaries or I was boundaryless, right? Mm. This woman totally is a reflection of me other than she doesn't have the alcoholism. Like she helps me see stuff and I help her see stuff. Um, but she had me look. And so I considered it in 2019, even though she wasn't a part of my life at the time. And it wasn't for me. What was the main reason why it wasn't for you at that time? I think I knew better. Like you could do it on your own or self-will? I probably knew better and I didn't want to admit I had a problem. Okay. And I didn't know how to live without it. That's a common theme for most alcoholics. You know, yeah, I, fear of losing what you have. And it's what I had. It's all I had for a long time. Mm. A year later, actually, you know, I talked about be, someone being considerate. We were going to do business, me and this woman, on some deals. And I was driving up to talk to her about him. And I went to her business. And she was having a bad day. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, just so you know, if I'm kind of coming off as rude or, you know, whatever it's not you, I'm having a bad day at the office, right? And I was like, oh man, that's so great. Like so sweet mm-hmm. and nice that she would, she cares enough about me to tell me it's it's not me doing something wrong. Well, I get there and I see how messed up her life is and how stressed out it was and all this stuff. And I know that I'm not living my best life and I know that I'm way too dependent on alcohol and that I'm running out of money and my business isn't doing what I want and I'm abusing Adderall. And I want to be better. And so I looked at her and I said, I'm going to quit drinking. So was she a mirror in which you saw yourself? She still is today. So that's a real gift, too, by the way, don't you think? Total blessing from God. And, and that's all I want to be for her in, in ways. And, that, and that's all I've been so far. And um, even when it's tough, I still learn lessons. And so I... That was a week before Friday the 13th. That was Friday, November 6th. And I told her, I'm going to give up alcohol. I'm going to finish the stuff I have in my fridge, finish that, and do my quotes and get my job out. I will uh, see you tomorrow night, and I'm done. You know. And so I stayed up all night on Adderall <laughs> doing yeah. work. She came down. I stopped drinking for three days. That customer I did the quote for sucked out some money out of my account three days later, and I was back to drinking and I started having a couple and then the next day I had three more and then the next day I had five more and that obsession and that fear and that Mm. whatever you know by that Friday Friday the 13th I'm doing a job in Kingwood as a business owner Friday sucked for me one because I couldn't finish 
I didn't always know how much money I had to pay my crews and get the jobs done. I was I wanted people to like me too much to go collect money. The work isn't hard. It's when you make it hard and you do things that aren't going to be, you know. So she was the reason, right, originally that I wanted to get sober because I wanted to be a part of her life and show up in ways I couldn't. And I wasn't going to be able to be a part of her life and, like, help her in an emergency if I'm uh -huh. drunk all the time. You know, it wasn't enough to keep me sober. And she reminds me of that and, you know, that I did the work mm. and God in the program and the steps helped me, right? But I still give her lots of credit for, you know, if it wasn't for her and her, God put her yeah. in her in my life, I don't know where I'd be. A lot of us have that, that situation, whether it's a wife or a girlfriend, a parent, a sister, a brother, somebody who is the touchstone for the reality of us being who we are at that point. And for me, it was being a drug addict and alcoholic. When my wife reminded me of my problem for the umpteenth time and then finally said, I, I probably won't be here when you get back. And that was the defining moment for me. That was the, that's what tripped the, the, the lever for me. So it sounds to me like you had that happen when you stopped originally, though, when you said, I'm going to stop, and then you stopped, and then you started again, were you anticipating going to AA as part of that stoppage? You know, if she would have done Al-Anon with me, right, and would have considered it, I would have been all in. But she, it wasn't, uh, I had not, I had not, I had such a bad experience, I guess, or not, I had, if I would have found these rooms, like the first time I came in, I found a good herd. Right. And if I would have found these rooms the first time, man, I, I wonder sometimes, would I have stayed? Right. I think I like this thing that Lois Wilson uh, says. She always invites God into the meeting. And uh, he says, a gentleman doesn't go places. He's not invited and he doesn't stay places. He's not made welcome. And I treat God like a gentleman and I treat myself like a like a gentleman. And I did not feel comfortable in my own skin that first time much less uh, feel welcome. And so if I would have met these guys, then they taught me that you get in the middle of the herd and, you, and they made me feel loved and appreciated, even though they're crusty old men. And, and I'm, I don't say hi in meetings. I don't know how to, right? Like, because I'm around men that don't, we don't have to say hi between. Well, the meetings that you go to are, are just, that's just the tradition that's emerged over the years. I know the meetings you're talking about. So it sounds to me like you had some kind of turning point between you wouldn't do it unless she would do it or you wouldn't really get too serious about it unless she got involved. She had mentioned before, you know, about it, like Al-Anon. She'd, cons she'd considered it. Someone suggested she'd consider it for, for uh, her qualifier. I was not her qualifier at the time. Um, but if I wanted to be her qualifier, by all means, I thought it would be neat, right, to have a teammate. And I, I've wanted a teammate in life to do life with forever, right? And I don't, I've never had it, so. It makes sense. I think it's not unusual, especially when you talk to some of the couples who came in around the same time who are sober today. You know, some of them, the conditions of them getting sober was for the other member of the couple to get sober. It's not an uncommon thing, but I think if I had waited for my wife to go into Al-Anon before I really got serious about AA, she was in and out of Al-Anon to the extent that she needed it or was enjoying it, and she's mostly not gone over the years, and we've been married 36 years. So you never can tell 
when somebody else's desire to do something that you're kind of attached to will make a difference? So I dated a woman in 2018 that you know, I care deeply about. And the one that I asked if she wanted to basically considered not drinking. And, um, and she gave me the freedom to drink. And I didn't really drink that much when I was with her, mm -hmm. right? Because she didn't like it. And I wanted her to like stuff. But, you know, we go to dinner. I model what my dad does. Right before you close the bill, you get another drink and you finish it, right? And because I don't right. want to go home and think I need another one, right? And I don't think, yeah, I know yeah. I don't have one at home, probably, depending on when I was dating her. So I better get one now. But when I wasn't with her, and I was by myself or working, and if I was on Adderall hooked up, I would drink. And then I'd get over there and, like, smell alcohol in my breath. And she didn't give me a hard time about it necessarily. But, but when I wasn't with her, like, I, would, I wanted to be with her. And I wanted to go have fun because I, you know, keep myself busy and keep me, you know, I don't like being alone. My brother who has been in the fellowship longer than me. And there was a guy that was like the super where I lived. He was in the program and we went to a meeting. The girl that lived right above me, she's in the program. I've saw her, you know, at a meeting. I haven't seen her since other than a birthday night. These people were all around me, but my brother like really forced the issue. And he said something to that girl I was dating in 18. And uh, he was pink clouding it, you know, promoting rather than attracting. He wanted me to, to have the experience that he had. And he basically kind of like didn't help the relationship that I was in. And I wasn't helping it myself because um, I wasn't being the guy right. that God needed me to be. I was being a needy guy that, you know, wanted what he wanted. But he like would drop, he dropped off like some AA literature. And, you know, I mean, I kept it, but I was like, what the hell do I need this thing for? Then you get someone that you actually listen to, like I, you know, someone that actually believe, kind of believed in you and gave you some hope and encouragement. And like, you know, when it comes to me losing weight, right? she told me a long time ago, like it pissed her off that I didn't think I could be 180 pounds. And immediately, like, just like this program, if you believe, I believe, right? The whole idea of like, maybe that, that I should get help or work on that, like it, it was planted in my mind. And so then I looked around and I'd see all these people who could potentially provide me a solution, but I was too selfish to take it for a long time. And then at some point I decided like, I want to be there for other people. I want to be there for someone right, wrong, or indifferent. So that's your, your pathway into AA. And it sounds to me like the first meetings you went to were not your cup of tea, but once you hit, hit the right combination of men and meetings, it made a big difference in the quality of your sobriety. Absolutely, like being a part of, they, they do the meeting before the meeting, in the meeting after. Um, you do that too. You come to the lunch on Thursday. I know you go out to eat after this meeting. We do Monday, we do a dinner, and then sometimes on Fridays. You do a lot of fellowshipping, in other words. Yeah, I replaced alcohol and drugs with trying to, like with one with sugar, right? And I, and I was told that was okay. Yeah. Probably did it to the extreme because I gained a bunch of weight and I got diabetes. I probably had it before, but I got diagnosed with a high A1C. Um, and I wanted to lose weight, but I didn't um, do anything. I wasn't, I was too scared to do anything about it. Like I talked to you about goals. Mm -hmm. How do you have a goal and not manage your own life? Like that whole managing your own life scared the hell out of me because I knew I couldn't manage my own life. So we learn how to turn it over. And that includes diets, that includes work, that includes, you know, that includes our programs just in general. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, 
over the past two years. What are some of the most significant milestones for you that, that solidified, enhanced, or strengthened your program? And then the flip side of that, this, the second part of that question will be, what have been the things in the two years that you've been sober that you felt were pulling you away? Giving up the drink that first Friday night is so important to me. That's why I keep the date. Getting into the herd and the fellowship right that night. Then my first meeting here at Holy Name, uh, mm-hmm. super important place to me. They say like it's where miracles happen. It's totally is for me. The day I finally admitted the uh, that I was still doing Adderall, and I called a guy from an organization I'm a part of, and I called him. I got his approval and validation mm-hmm. that I should give this up. That I should just be honest with my sponsor and hang up the phone, throw out the pill call my sponsor and tell him what's going on. I did exactly what he told me. And my sponsor said, okay, just come to a meeting. No big deal. I was like, am I going to have to reset my sobriety date? He said, no, I, you know, we'll see you at the meeting. Like, don't just come on. But thank God he didn't say you have to reset your sobriety date. Cause I would have gone to that shell station that I last drank at cause it was on the way and I would have drank and who knows what would happen to drink for me is to die. And I don't want to drink. And I don't just recently, I realized like I want y'all's approval just like I wanted the girl's approval. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a bad thing when I go to that obsession and it's too far. But thank God I do. AA is a great place to get approval too. I mean, the handing out of chips at the end of the meeting and people clapping and cheering for each other, you know, just for staying sober. Keep coming back, inviting people back, even when they say stupid stuff. It's like the guy said that, you know, I don't know why people congratulate me for being sober. It's like congratulating a cowboy with hemorrhoids for not riding a horse, you know? Why are you congratulating me on something that's saving my life? I feel better doing it, like that competitive solution, but Deion Sanders, like, you dress good, you feel good, you feel good, you play good, you play good, they pay good. Like, AA in not drinking is a solution for living. And a design, they say, design for living, and it helps yeah. me be the best version of me and show up for me and then for others. Um, and for God. So that day when I showed up here, December 9th was an important date. I pulled in, I saw the priest in the parking lot. I didn't have a tailgate. Someone stole my tailgate at one point in time. So people would joke about me missing a tailgate and I didn't have the means and I didn't have the the grit and desire to like change because I was so afraid and just, uh. yeah. Um, but I pulled up and I was like, are y'all doing reconciliation? Like I'd love to like admit my faults and my sins and come, you know, get, and he's like, no, we're not. We're giving away food to people, but, um, I'll be right down. And so the guy came down to my truck and he heard me admit, basically give a fifth step, but admit what I did. And he, he gave me reconciliation and, you know, gave me a confession. And, uh, and so that was a big, important thing. Getting, get, coming here to a retreat. Right. I remember you at that. And. And I was so burnt up and I wasn't a part of this process group. I was a part of a process group like every that met every day if I wanted to at first. And these are guys that got sick of doing just Zooms, but so they meet every day and uh Right. I w- didn't I never went to rehab, right? I didn't I didn't have that experience. I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know about yeah. I struggled with boundaries, right? Like I would, you know, see something wrong with you and I want to fix you. I didn't know you're supposed to share your experience, strength and hope that's from your sobriety. I, would, I was going to tell you how to run business because I've run business. And All so right. I got kicked out of this group, and I got really burnt at this guy who, who is the one that actually told me that, you know, you're going to have to reset your sobriety date. And I was at a different shell station. I mean, he told me, you know, you're going to have to re- reset it. I was at a different shell station. But, yeah. you know, I listened to him. I respected him. My sponsor respected him. Eventually, I got so mad and upset and resentful for him. 
I did an entire fourth step just on him. And so I came here and someone was encouraging me to finish my fourth step. And I wanted to be fearless and thorough. I went back at everybody. I thought everyone else was the problem. I didn't think it was me. And so finally, uh, I was like, you know, I just need to act. And so I grabbed a, a buddy of mine that loves acts of God. And I said, hey, can we, can I talk to you? Can I share my fourth step? Can I, my fifth step? Can I, and I did that. And he said, you know what you did, that right there is like a really mature four step. And he gave me validation and told me, basically made me feel like I'm on the right path and I could do more. That was another one, right? So this place is just so important to me. Um, Later on at another retreat, you know, I finally had the courage to put, you know, it's just a list in eight, right? And I put, I dealt with them in relationships, you know, and the people, right? But I didn't want to put the the financial list. I didn't want to put my, I was scared to even look at it, much less put it on paper. And so I had the courage to actually make the list and finish the list. And people were like, what are you doing? Why are you, every time there's a break, why are you, you're not supposed to do your eighth step on the computer. I'm like, you know, this is an Excel spreadsheet. This is financial thing. So getting to that point to Uh do it. Um, I ended up changing sponsors and, and, and switching to two sponsors, a financial amend sponsor, and then uh-huh. a personal amend sponsor. The financial mm-hmm. amend sponsor, you know, we're supposed to share our experience, strength, and hope. And if you don't have it, you don't have it to give away. And so I know I have a lot yeah. of experience, strength, and hope to give away because I had a lot of fucked up shit in my life. Excuse my language. Uh-huh. But I didn't have a solution for it for a long time. And it wasn't God and it wasn't trusting God. And so I, I say that financial amend sponsor says it all the time. Or he says, trusting God only counts when you don't want to. And I, I said all, for a long time, it really counts when you don't want to, because I feel like I trust him all the time. But today, like the biggest growth that I've had in my whole life in sobriety is always when I was afraid uh-huh. to trust God and afraid to do the next thing, whatever it is, whether it was getting sober, whether it was admitting the Adderall, whether it was doing the fourth step, whether it was doing the eighth step to even have potential to do a ninth step. I wasn't really afraid of doing the ninth step as much as I was like facing it. And I did and I and afraid that I wasn't gonna do it right. And the great thing is, Mark, is that I've had the opportunity to watch you grow in the program. The things that you just talked about are the sign of somebody who is maturing in the process of staying sober over time. It is the sign of the man who is standing in the middle of the herd, who knows that's where he needs to be. I've seen you reach out to other men. This is one of the rare privileges that I get in interviewing people who I know and see in meetings, is I get to see you, how you're interacting. I mean, you can talk to me all day long about how you're doing things, but when I see you across the room saying hi to the newcomer, or when I see you sitting down and working with a sponsee, or talking you know, to, to men who I'm close to as, as one who is hungry for their wisdom and their experience, strength, and hope, that to me is the greatest validation of someone who's working a good program. Well, I, I appreciate that. I've not been working as well of a program recently as I could. My mechanics have waned in some regards, but today they're, I'm on fire again. Today God is uh, everything or else he's nothing and I choose to believe he's everything. And he's, you know, my sobriety the fear I don't want to lose that it's a gift and and I can help people sober or not like like the guys that are married 
and they do yeah. service work by being a good dad or being a good husband. I think those guys deserve so much love and appreciation for what they do because there's ways to be helpful and of service to other people besides an alcoholic, but it, it's really fulfilling when you can be, you know, helping anybody is great, but helping another alcoholic, it's so rewarding and it takes, it yeah. takes me to another place and it connects me with God. Um, I haven't been able to help as many guys, right? But it's so crazy. It's like, I know that I help people by being connected to them and they help me when I'm with, you know, by being connected with them. And it's, you don't know, they say who, you don't know who's pitching or catching. Like my financial men sponsors now, you know, he, it bleeds over into my other men's and I'm about to work the steps with a, a new sponsor. That's the mechanics of AA. I, you know, to me, I want to grow and growing. If I'm not growing, like I'm dying. And so, yeah, I don't think I'll ever be perfect. Like I, I feel like my life is really getting good. Yeah. Yeah. Am I making it? And like, like am I, I used to say I'm recovered from a hopeless mind and body. Right. I realized today, like, this is where I get to that whole, like my program sucks, sucked for a little bit. And I didn't, wasn't doing the mechanics. I realized I can still be sober and still be hopeless. And I didn't, didn't feel that way. The, you know, the past year was not, I felt pretty good for most of the year. Yeah, that's understandable, though. I mean, uh, if for as long as I've been sober and having to deal with clinical depression on top of being an alcoholic, there have been plenty of times where I'm grateful for my... I mean, you can be grateful, but acknowledge that you're feeling crummy, too. Yeah. So I always like to say that as long as I'm sober, I have the chance to work on other things. And, and I see you doing that as a man in the program. And... You know, what I'm going to suggest to you is once this is once this is out and one of the guys who I uh, interviewed early, early on told me that at one point he was going through something where he wasn't going to enough meetings. He wasn't doing this. And you know what his sponsor told him? He said, go back and listen to that interview. Go back and listen to yourself and the things that you were saying that were so important and get back to it. And he said when he went back and he listened and it reminded him of what he was saying, you know, six months earlier, whenever it was. So I'm going to invite you as you go forward with your program. And I, I know right now you're working a good program. Is it perfect? No. Is it progress? Yes. Can you feel uh, grateful about being an alcoholic in sobriety? Absolutely. Uh, can you also feel the human feelings that we all feel from time to time? You know, we're, we're spiritual beings having a human experience, and part of the human experience in my mind is to experience sadness, frustration, anger, worry, this and that, fully acknowledging the fact that I still have to do the things to stay sober on a daily basis. And if those things should help the other difficulties in my life, then God has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. So, uh, you know, in, in kind of wrapping up, I want to I wanna really thank you for doing this. And I, I look forward to you and I being brothers in sobriety. And as I tell all my guests, I love you. And I think you're making uh, a terrific yeah. progress in a lot of different ways. I, I really appreciate it. Howard, you, I have so much respect for you. And thank you for, for being in my life and helping me stay sober. Thank you for doing this. Well, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Mark D., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.